We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing talk of a Taiwan-Palau travel bubble, executives from two tech companies being questioned over allegations they have violated laws governing cross-strait ties and also been poaching Taiwan's high-tech people via an alleged China-funded company. Increased concerns about water shortages as the government seeks to calm industry worries about it. A constitutional court hearing concerning a case regarding indigenous people's hunting rights and tabloid fodder for the front pages. But we will begin with... This week, beginning here in Taiwan, where it began with China's foreign minister warning the US to roll back what he called former President Donald Trump's dangerous practice of showing support for the island. Now, speaking at a news conference during the annual meeting of China's ceremonial legislature, Wang Yi said the Chinese government has no room for compromise and the US needs to fully understand the high sensitivity of the Taiwan issue as it's an insurmountable red line. Wang went on to say that President Joe Biden should completely change the previous administration's dangerous practices of crossing the line and playing with fire. Now, the State Department responded by reiterating that the Biden administration, well, it supported Taiwan and that support was rock solid. And the US also stood with its regional friends and allies, including deepening unofficial ties with democratic Taiwan. And it also called on Beijing to cease its military, diplomatic and economic pressure against the island and instead engaging meaningful dialogue with Taiwan's democratic elected representatives. Now, a day later, White House press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters during a regular press briefing that saying that its position on Taiwan remains unchanged and that Washington will continue to support the island by contributing to its self-defence capabilities. Now, well, the, of course, that's all pretty normal. We've heard all that before, but of course the foreign ministry here thanked America for its continued support. And while those that news sort of made news, made news all over the world, it wasn't until the earlier this week, on Wednesday in fact, that the issue made global headlines after US Admiral Philip Davidson, who is the commander of the US Indo-Pacific Command, told a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing that China's threats to wall Taiwan could manifest within the next six years. Now, according to Davidson, the number of military assets that China has been deploying and the advancement of its capabilities shows that it's accelerating those ambitions. And he warned that Beijing has long said that it wants to supplant the US by 2050 and is now concerned about them moving that target closer. And he said that Taiwan is clearly one of their ambitions before then. Needless to say, Beijing took exception to Davidson's comments and accused him of hyping up the threat of invasion of Taiwan. And he said that the China threat is basically being used in the US as a pretext for it to increase its military spending, expand its forces and interfere in regional politics. So, Ross, of course, it started off with nothing we've heard before. Then suddenly there was something we hadn't heard before. I think for the most part, uh, you're correct that most of this is stuff we've heard before, whether it's the the incumbent U.S. government saying they'll continue to have unofficial ties and support Taiwan's defense. Uh, obviously, a lot of uh, more substantive actions, perhaps, and certainly in the weapons sales space under the Trump administration. But I think generally the quotes you gave us from the U.S. government are right from the playbook, as is uh, the response from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taipei to say thank you for U.S. for your support. This could have, this conversation, we could have been having it two years ago, four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, uh, uh, even longer, you know, different U.S. presidents, different governments here in Taiwan 
as well. Uh, U.S. military officials talking about uh, the threat from China, uh, discussing it in you know open hearing in front at the U.S. Congress or in public speeches. That's also not new as well. I mean, if you if the uh, commander uh, of the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific forces accelerated the timeline by why they think. China might invade Taiwan. I mean, maybe there's something new there, but let's be frank. The threat of invasion from uh, China, notwithstanding the the quote from the Chinese side that you just gave us, that it's the U.S. who's hyping it up, uh, that that's had, that's real and it's existed for a long time. And uh, we don't know for sure when they might do that. And that that really uh, brings us way back, right back to the key point, which is Taiwan has to continue to do what's necessary to invest in its own and prepare for its own defense, and not just rely on other countries. Yeah, a few reactions to that. Although what um, China is saying, what the U.S. is saying, are technically repetitive, and we could have had the same conversation any number of years ago, they are interesting because uh, President Joe Biden is relatively new in office, and I think the Chinese and perhaps the Americans and people here are all trying to figure out what he's what he's really onto, and what his Taiwan policy will be, what his China policy will be. So just the mere fact that his government is repeating things, at least tells us that he's not going to make any radical changes for now. Um, the, the, the notion of an invasion within six years, I, I've been living here for 15 years, and every, every you know, I want to say like at least every year, somebody comes out of the woodwork with some kind of prediction along those lines, and a lot of them have already passed. These deadlines they've assigned for an invasion have come and gone, and there has been no invasion. So... I don't put too much stock in that, um, and, and I think the U.S. officials said something like could be or might be. There was some caveating there of an actual invasion. So anything could be uh, if we if we couch in those terms. I saw somewhere also that China, uh, in, in addition to responding the way it did to the U.S., um, it had said that it hopes for a, a peaceful solution with Taiwan, which of course is not new either, but at least it tells you they are keen to distract attention from the idea of a war. And Ross, do you think Beijing is still poking the Biden administration to see how far it can actually poke it? I, I think they would do that. Uh, even if Taiwan was not an issue, they'd find other issues to, to poke about, uh, but certainly Taiwan is one as well. We, we see that with the military activity from uh, China and, and not just testing how Taiwan responds, but obviously it tests how the Biden administration and to a lesser extent other countries in, in East Asia uh, respond as well. So that that shouldn't surprise us, uh, but uh, I'd caution against thinking or, or, or putting Taiwan as the priority in the poking context, because I think we're going to see China test a new U.S. administration across a wide range of uh, trade and other security, foreign policy issues. I think that we will probably see Biden say very little about this going forward. Um, the, the, his mandate, and I think he's expressed this well, has been to take care of COVID at home. I just saw some news saying that every adult in the U.S. will be offered a vaccine by May. That's going to take a lot of work. Um, Biden has also made it really clear that China, he sees China as a competitor. He'll collaborate with China when, it, when he wants to, when it's in U.S. interest to do so. And um, it's a bit tougher than what China wanted, but it's also not entirely out of out of whack with what other presidents have said about China. And Ross, do you think Beijing is sort of secretly somewhere happy that Trump has gone? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question, and uh, there's a lot of chatter about that, um, e- even in, in the within the parameters that chatter is allowed on the internet in China, where, where you see netizens saying, oh, it's too bad uh, Trump is gone because we don't have as much uh, uh, controversy or entertainment uh, that, that he generates uh, uh, just by by virtue of his personality and his style of speaking and uh, earlier his style of tweeting, which for now is, is he's been deprived of. Uh, so you know, that's all speculative, right? I, you, know, you could say that it helps the Chinese government to have this target, the, you know, this to rile up support domestically, you know, that the U.S. president is, is implementing a, a number of policies designed to constrain China. And of course, it sells well domestically, but I would expect the Chinese government to, to to make that argument with whoever is the U.S. president. I, I, again, I would expect them to make that argument with Biden as well, especially to the extent that you know, we have the uh, Secretary of State saying that um, there, there's, he agrees with the genocide uh, finding of the previous administration with regard to Uyghurs in Xinjiang uh, to the extent that Biden administration hasn't immediately removed tariffs or any wide number of, of issues. I, I think China is going to continue to uh, demonize Biden uh, for domestic political consumption purposes. Um, so uh, we'll, you know, as we often say with these kinds of issues, we'll be talking about them. You know, as I, I said earlier, you know, this seems similar to a conversation we could have had at any point in, in the past. I'm sure we'll have this in the future, and hopefully the three of us will be here, and uh, China will not have invaded, and Ralph will point out uh, several commentators who, whose predictions came and went, because that would be so much better than us talking about China has already invaded and one person got it right. Definitely. Anyway, but Ralph, I mean, obviously, Mike Pompeo, the former U.S. bod under Trump, he had an interview with the Central News Agency this week in which he said he would love to come to Taiwan for a visit. I mean, do you think inviting him to Taiwan will be a good thing? Or maybe the government here should err on the side of caution and say, not at the moment, Mr. Pompeo. I think that Pompeo being a former, although a very recent former uh, official from the U.S., would probably make very little impact if he came here. Um, to your earlier question, is China happy that Trump is gone? Probably so. They really hope that uh, Biden will be an institutional Democrat and kind of play by Democrat rules that they're used to. Uh, Pompeo being part of the Trump administration, he could come here. It would be news for a couple of days. I suppose the Chinese foreign ministry would sound off about it in some kind of statement, and then it would, the issue would probably go away. But unless Pompeo has some kind of actual influence or power that I'm not aware of. I don't think his visit would make much long-lasting impact here. I I think uh, it'll just be similar to all the former officials, uh, predominantly from the U.S., but but from other governments that the Taiwan government has a habit of inviting uh, once these persons are out of power. Uh, but uh, Pompeo will, if he did come, he he would make a speech. He would leave within a couple of days. There'd be some follow-up media coverage maybe in in the United States. uh, It might become relevant if he runs for president. Uh, It's speculative whether he would win the Republican nomination, let alone win the general election. Uh, But it it would become a talking point um, because of his very clear positions on China-related issues. 
And moving on, and both the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week confirmed that Taiwan is in talks with Palau regarding the establishment of a travel bubble. Earlier in the week, the Foreign Ministry's Department of East Asian and Pacific Affairs announced that discussions are ongoing and the results will hopefully be known by mid or late this month. While on Wednesday, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong said the talks are now in the final stage, but an agreement on the kind of test that should be conducted before individuals are allowed to take advantage of the travel bubble remains unresolved. And sources have been quoted as saying that China Airlines and Ever Airways will likely operate several flights per week, basically to Palau and back here. Reports are also saying, though, as part of the precautionary measures for coronavirus transmission, authorities are considering allowing commercial flights to utilise only 70% of their passenger capacity. Now, Palau's ambassador to Taiwan says the country's president, Suringal Whips Jr., plans to visit Taiwan on the first travel bubble flight once the, well, the travel bubble has been established. Palau, of course, is one of Taiwan's 15 diplomatic allies. And apparently, according to the Palau government, it has not had any confirmed coronavirus cases since the start of the pandemic. Now, Transport Minister Lin Jialong this week also announced that Singapore, Japan, South Korea and Vietnam are also in talks with Taiwan concerning the establishment of possible travel bubbles. Now, a Taiwan-Palau travel bubble, of course, Ross, was first talked about in August of last year. It takes a while to, to blow a bubble, Gavin. You know, you, you need to have uh, all, all the proper uh, conditions, weather, uh, breath, you know, to expand that bubble. Uh, but uh, jokes aside, obviously, the proper health conditions were necessary. And Taiwan, as we all know, has had a relatively small number of confirmed COVID cases. And as you said, Palau uh, alleges they've had zero uh, but caution has has ruled ever since those talks began last August, and that's why there is no bubble up to now. I'm kind of surprised that Palau would proceed w- without uh, Taiwan having rolled out a, a broad vaccination program yet. Uh, again, if you want to err on the side of caution, you would just wait because uh, we all hope that there'll be a, a wide vaccination program implemented sometime in the coming months here. Uh, the inter- other interesting uh, thing is they're going to roll this out as the summer comes in here in Taiwan and Palau might be a place you'd go for for the beach and, and nice weather uh, but we have that here in Taiwan so there, there's probably some pent up demand by people who just want to get on an airplane and, and go somewhere else for the thrill of going there but I, I don't think this would ever this will create a long term pattern of, of large numbers of Taiwan tourists going to Palau. I mean, at best, it might return to the previous year's numbers. I was thinking about it just now from Palau's point of view, and it's a tiny country. I think last I checked, uh, the population was something like 20,000 people, and their only viable major industry is tourism. It's a very good industry. Uh, the beaches there are nothing like the ones here. There's all sorts of diving, and the, the whole country is set up to accommodate people from mostly around other from other parts of Asia <clears throat> for, for this kind of tourism. So they're looking at places who can help them restore that a year on. They figured Taiwan already sends a lot of tourists there in, in normal times if the two airlines fly and all that. So it makes sense for them to push as hard as they can. And it looks like one of the sticking points is going to be Taiwan's willingness or otherwise to reduce the 14-day quarantine for people coming back. It would make sense as part of the spirit of a travel bubble to cut it down or to cut it out, uh, but I have not seen any sign 
so far that Taiwan's willing to reduce quarantines for anybody. Uh, Singapore, at some point, I think in late 2000, late last year, offered some kind of a, a safe travel channel pass kind of thing for the Taiwanese, but then Taiwan didn't reciprocate by waiving the quarantines for people coming back here or for Singaporeans coming here. So it doesn't really work unless both sides cut that out or cut that back. I think that that just shows the the caution of government officials here. Uh, they don't want to relax these quarantine requirements. And they, the other aspect that I think they're going to struggle with is those post-quarantine self-monitoring requirements as well, that you could go out, but you, you still have to kind of be tethered to the app and you're supposed to wear masks um, for another period of time. So they'll, they'll probably do some combination of that. I, I, I expect they'll get it done. Maybe by the time they get it done, uh, they'll be able to reduce the quarantine and still have some of the self-reporting uh, for, for a number of days. Uh, there'll be a combina- also be a combination of people who have been vaccinated as well. But again, frankly, I think by the time that this gets implemented, the, the demand will be somewhat modest, especially if travel to other locations opens up as well. So, of course, Ross, I've got some numbers here concerning the number of Taiwanese nationals who did travel to Palau in recent years. Of course, in 2019, apparently for the whole year, 14,065 ROC nationals travelled to Palau. Now, last year, of course, this is beginning of last year, in January, 1,348 ROC nationals visited Palau. In February, 834 travelled to Palau. And in March, 326 travelled to Palau. And I presume most of those were actually members of the ROC Navy. But, of course, come April, nobody was travelling to Palau. So looking at those numbers, Ross, I mean, do you think it's going to be financially viable for these airlines to actually operate sort of multiple flights per week to Palau and back? I think very quickly they'll reduce the number of flights to accommodate the demand. Again, that, that, that's why I think that the numbers of, of travelers that we're talking about ultimately is going to be very modest. And you know, at best, it'll return to the 2019 numbers. The Palau economy is not going to uh, be relying on the Taiwan travelers uh, if they're going to uh, return to previous economic growth levels. Then they're going to have to accommodate travel from other locations, which hopefully will happen as as the situation improves. Regionally and globally, with the with the rollout of vaccination programs in the other key markets uh, from which travelers visit Palau, but but again, I mean, they're not going to rely on Taiwan tourists to save their economy. And Ralph, what about people from Palau coming to Taiwan? You got a travel bubble. Surely, people Palau could come here on holiday. They could, but I don't think they will. They just well, they could, but there are only I, I, I believe it's just something like twenty thousand people, maybe it's more by now. This is an old figure, but. Um, even if they all came, it wouldn't really do a whole lot for the the service economy in a, in a place like this with 24 million people already here. Um, I do think that the airlines um, will be will fill up. As Ross said, they might cut back flights to accommodate actual demand. Even before the pandemic, I think that they weren't flying every day. It was that you could go down once a week and come back later on the same week on the same airline. And that means the, um, the you know they they understand that they have to accommodate demand. And I remember trying to get a flight there once, and I couldn't because they were full. So um, regardless of what the numbers really were, um, they enough people want to go, so they were filling the planes. And I can imagine that will just happen again. And do you see a Singapore, Japan, South Korea, and Vietnam travel bubble? 
conglomeration starting anytime soon? Or do you think we're still still several months away from that, if not and probably nearly half a year away from that, Ralph? I think it's going to take at least that long. We're talking about countries that, although they trust one another fundamentally and they've taken some similar measures in controlling the coronavirus, we're looking at Japan, which had a major spike around the end of last year, the beginning of this year, and it wasn't their first spike. And Japan has been more aggressive about reopening, perhaps because of the, the, the pending Olympics and again, trying to get their whole economy restarted. And as we discussed earlier on the call, countries and governments are going to be more cautious than optimistic, I think. Uh, Yes, they could technically reduce quarantines. They could do some things on a pilot trial basis, allow the bubble to open only to certain kinds of people and require every test possible and all sorts of vaccines and proof of this and proof of that. But at the end of the day, if the policymakers are conservative, if they're worried about even one or two cases upsetting the public, then they just won't do it. And moving on to some business news, albeit possibly rather shady business. The new Taipei District Prosecutor's Office on Wednesday of this week released the executives of two tech companies on bail after they were questioned for alleged violations of laws governing cross-strait ties. The release of the two executives and several other people in connection with the case came a day after law enforcement officials raided the offices of Wise Corps and IC Link and summoned 19 people for questioning over allegations of poaching talent from local high-tech companies. Now, the two companies are allegedly China-funded, and prosecutors say that the joint venture was established by the two companies and an unapproved financial support from a Chinese artificial intelligence chip designer. Now, there's been reports saying that this was in violation of cross-strait laws because, basically, they didn't get permission from Taiwan's Investment Commission, and prosecutors have also said that, basically, the, the actions of these companies had an adverse impact on the local semiconductor industry. So, apparently, Ross, they were acting as headhunter companies companies to attract people to China. Um, they might have broken sort of like business laws, but obviously bail was set at no more than 200,000 NT. So, Well, the, the, there's a mix of issues that uh, we see a lot of media reports sort of throwing together, uh, but in, in odd ways, which I think reflects some misunderstanding about the situation. As you said, uh, and I think as the listeners know, companies from China or companies set up in Hong Kong or anywhere else that have Chinese uh, financial backing that are setting up uh, an operation onshore presence here in Taiwan do require certain approvals. Frankly, so do other types of foreign investors, not just Chinese investors. Uh, but normally, there'd be a more intense review if it's a Chinese company or, uh, again, a third country company that's ultimately part of a Chinese uh, company. It, it seems that the, the accusation is th- this operation. They just ignored that. So they, they set up a, a company as if it was a local company, maybe without the requisite approvals that would apply to foreign or Chinese companies. Uh, and that, if that is the case, then it would break the law if they didn't have the appropriate approvals uh, for Chinese-backed uh, companies uh, to establish an operation in Taiwan. The other issue is this recruitment issue, and that's the one I find a bit peculiar. Uh, Gavin, if you want to run a headhunting company, you might need approvals to be in the headhunting business. Uh, but look, you know, they could have just simply uh, put website ads uh, from overseas, you know, an overseas server, uh, overseas programmer. They didn't need to have people in Taiwan to recruit uh, engineers here. And to the extent that there, there are Taiwan executives 
uh, engineers who are probably very brilliant people, and that's that's why they make a lot of money designing these things, uh, who, who were initially hired by the Chinese company. And then they set themselves up here to try and recruit uh, other engineers to join this company. Again, that Taiwanese person could have simply uh, moved to China and made telephone calls because that would not have been illegal, right? It would not have been illegal for the, the a Taiwan individual or a Chinese individual to make phone calls or send emails from China saying, hey, Gavin, I have a great job offer. Uh, do, do you want to hear more about it? Are you, would you be interested in moving here to China? In fact, that happens every day. And as I said, it's, it's not illegal. So you know, people in Taiwan, in any industry, they have freedom of movement <laughs> if they want to move uh, to another country including china to accept a job offer they're allowed to do that what is illegal and and again it's getting mixed up in these some of the quotes i'm seeing from experts in in the media reports is about the the risk to the to the taiwan semiconductor industry and the the risk is whether or not these individuals stole anything, right? So do they steal any intellectual property? So where the issues start to get mixed is people say, oh, Chinese company didn't have a permit and it's bad for the Taiwan semiconductor industry. Well, I mean, it's bad if these engineers stole the the intellectual property of their former employers, but that, that is a, a different issue that needs to be investigated in isolation. But keep in mind, these engineers, they could have taken a job with, with an American company or a Japanese company or a South Korean company, uh, which also would be uh, a potential comp- competitive risk for the Taiwan company. That That's not the equivalent to, of stealing the intellectual property of the Taiwan company. But uh, again, I think some of these issues are getting a bit mixed up. And of course, Ralph, all this comes amid concern about a brain drain to China. Yeah, these are again, sort of old issues, but well worth discussing. I I understand the Taiwan government's concern that brain drain has been around for a while, not only to China, where salaries can be a little bit higher, but to other parts of the world, too. The IPR issue, um, in other words, copyright and trademark theft is also a very credible matter. I believe one of the reasons TSMC has never opened a China factory, perhaps they're not even allowed to, according to the rules here. Uh, that said, I don't. I, I agree with Ross. I don't think headhunting is categorically illegal. Even if it is, it would be really, really hard to stop. It can be done online or offline, formally or informally. So um, we are global, and these companies are global, and they know where the talent is, and all it takes is a call to reach out. So if they want to, they will. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we talked about water woes a couple of weeks ago, but since then matters have gotten slightly more worrying. But the government is still seeking to allay concerns about sufficient water reserves. Now, Economics Minister Wang Meihua on Monday said that there should be enough water to supply the public and industry until late May, when she said it's hoped that monsoonal rains will arrive to alleviate what is Taiwan's worst drought in 56 years. However, she did warn that until then, rainfall is likely to be in rather short supply and possibly fall to, well, below average historical levels. Now, reports have been saying the US, Japan and European officials are urging the government here to do all it can to ensure a steady supply of chips as automakers in their countries delay production and idle plants due to a lack of crucial components. Now, of course, that means industry here. 
chip makers. And the Ministry of Science and Technology on Thursday said that it's not ruling out the possibility of allowing science parks here to drill wells in order to meet the demand if the current drought continues. Now, Science Minister U Jung Jong said that his office is now requesting that science parks actually study the feasibility of drilling wells. And he says that that will likely only be considered as an option if water supplies continue to decrease. He also stressed that any proposals to drill water wells by companies will first need to undergo environmental impact assessments. So, Ross, I mean, the government's worried about water. It's saying possibly you can drill wells near the science parks, not in them. But, of course, everyone that you want to drill will have to have an environmental impact assessment. It doesn't, knowing the speed that these environmental impact assessments take here, Ross, that doesn't sound like a very quick answer to the problem. It, it also uh, it doesn't offer us any confidence that they would find a sufficient amount of water when, when they drill uh, to address the needs of uh, industry, commercial users, as, as well as uh, residential users. You know, this is a situation that is not new. Uh, and, uh, just like some of the other things we were talking about earlier in the show, we could have been having this conversation several year, years earlier. There's been periods uh, within uh, recent decades when there were very severe restrictions imposed uh, on water usage in, in for example, uh, public restrooms um, and, and other uh, restrictions on residential users, for example. Uh, of course, we hope it doesn't doesn't get to that. Uh, the same issue always gets pointed out about the infrastructure uh, in many places around Taiwan is old, and there's a lot of leakage uh, as well. Uh, but you know, the government wants more industry to come back from Taiwan, from China to Taiwan. The government wants um, foreign investors, of course, to expand here as well, uh, as well as the existing local uh, industry, not just in tech, but other types of manufacturing as well. So uh, th- this is a significant risk uh, to the economy, or not necessarily in the short term, but over the medium and long term, it's certainly something that uh, investors are going to have to carefully think about. And, of course, Ralph, we've got TSMC bringing in water trucks and talk of drilling wells in outside science parks. Yeah, I think that's the news that really got everybody worried because TSMC is a global name among the tech community and among investors. So when they said something like that, everybody had this image in their mind of, like, there being basically nothing coming out of the tap and this big company has to go supply its own. My understanding, it was... TSMC was taking a precaution. They still have water. They haven't been cut off. And they're in northern Taiwan, which I think is doing a little better than the south. So it's not that critical for them. It's purely a precaution. I've found over the years that when Taiwan declares it's in a drought, usually you wait about a month and then we get a just a you know something short of a flood, basically. And it rains and rains and rains, and everybody forgets about it. Um so that would probably solve our problem again um, because the weather here is volatile. It's generally a rainy island. I think we had a big drought in 2015, and the like parts of New Taipei City and Taoyuan were starting to ration water and turn off supplies at people's homes. So this can be done. Um, people survive it, and then it starts raining again. In terms of doing wells, um, it, it wouldn't hurt as a precaution. Perhaps we can take care of these lengthy, protracted environmental impact assessments, and by the time they're done, we'll be in the next drought, and it will be, that time, it will be useful to start drilling the wells. And of course, Ross, it's probably not going to be too long before someone starts jumping up and down saying Taiwan should import water. 
a last time I checked, Gavin, we're an island. We're surrounded by water. I don't know how much water we need to import as as opposed to lo- looking at desalinization efforts. Uh, we should also have faith in Taiwan's extraordinary technical expertise and ability to research and develop new technologies and, and hope that they do find a solution. Uh, you know, Ralph makes a great observation about how when when in past situations, people get worried or the government issues warnings about water shortages. Inevitably, it seems to, to rain again uh, and rain a lot and, and address the issue. Uh, the, the forecasters are saying, though, that the, as of now, and it's still a little early, but they're not optimistic about uh, a significant typhoon season, at least in the first few months. And I hope I'm wrong. So uh, hopefully there will be sufficient amount of rain. Uh, but but uh, I'm concerned about the Ralph's observation again, because if that were to occur, then people forget about the problem, government officials, the public generally, corporates, and then it doesn't get addressed and it'll come back again in a couple of years. And turning to some legal news this week, well, the Constitutional Court heard a legal argument on how gun control and wildlife conservation laws should be balanced with the rights of Taiwan's indigenous people to hunt. Now, the argument involves the case of Wang Guanglu, a Bunan man from Taidong's Haiduan Township, who was sentenced to three and a half years in prison on weapons and poaching charges for shooting a couple of animals with a modified rifle in 2013. The Supreme Court dismissed Wang's appeal to have the charges overturned in 2015, but in 2017, it granted an extraordinary appeal to have the case referred for an interpretation by the Constitutional Court. At issue in the case is the extent of protections the Constitution grants to the hunting culture of Taiwan's indigenous peoples, including on issues relating to wildlife conservation. Now, all that sounds good and fun and bubbly and simple to get rid of and just say they can hunt, no problem. But the Ministry of the Interior is arguing that basically there's concern that homemade weapons could fall into the wrong hands and be used for criminal purposes, Ross. Yeah, there's a couple of issues here. One is whether or not uh, the the Constitution uh, puts the need to uh, address ecology, environmental protection issues uh, at an equal level to the need or the protection of cultural considerations, uh, or one takes precedence over over the other. The authorities, uh, I guess understandably, because they they have to take into account broader considerations such as uh, endangered species or the animal population, other types of ecological environmental management concerns. It, it seems that their view is that these are not equal issues and the cultural concerns certainly do not take precedence over ecological environmental uh, forestry management considerations. It seems like the authorities are not surprisingly erring on the side of caution. And, and they're saying that uh, if they're equal, then we get to make those determinations uh, about how often you can hunt, what, what you can hunt, what type of uh, weapons you could use, all, all with a view towards proper management of, of natural resources. So to the extent the authorities are saying that the, the considerations are equal, but basically that means um, no, the cultural consideration comes sec- is secondary to, to the management issues. Uh, so the, uh, it's clear that the authorities want the cultural considerations to be secondary. And, and uh, the indigenous uh, individuals who, who have brought the legal action are saying, no, the cultural considerations and protection of uh, our, our heritage, and w- of which hunting is an important part, uh, you know, we're, we're the people. You know, that, that, that needs to take precedence over uh, the forestry management and resources management considerations 
operations. And the other issue has to do with the regulation of, of weapons, as you mentioned, Gavin, and uh, uh, for, for the indigenous individuals, uh, understandably, they, they don't want to have to get a permit for every kind of weapon that they use to do hunting, which they can, when they consider the hunting to be part of their, their heritage and something that doesn't need to be micromanaged by the government. And where the government is saying, uh, no, we want to restrict the types of weapons you can use. And you, for every weapon that you use, you got to come get permits. Uh, so there, there's a clash of considerations. Uh, I think it's, it's very good that the Constitutional Court accepted the case. Uh, they're stuck between two very valid considerations in, in how they rule. I, I would expect that their ruling is not going to uh, be dramatically to one side or the other. It's probably going to be more along the lines of, you guys figure it out. <laughs> and why don't you guys talk and uh, find a, a solution that makes everyone happy? Because very often, not on every issue, but on a lot of issues, that's kind of the way the constitutional court rules. Yeah, I would think that the public security concerns and the wildlife management concerns will easily, at the end of the day, which might take a while, they will easily override the cultural concerns of the indigenous populations who are used to hunting. For one thing, uh, most indigenous people don't hunt. Uh, they, they live in cities and they do other things, even in Taidong and Wadi, where a lot of them are concentrated. Um, it's I think it's appealing to them, but they still have the right to do that as something special in their community that other people don't have. But I don't think there's a, a fantastic amount of demand to go to go bag a wild boar up in the you know up in the mountains of Taidong anymore, like there might have used to been. Um, I think Ross is right. The court will come out and say, why don't you try to settle it yourself? They won't say absolutely no weapons um, for the indigenous people, nor will they say, go ahead and use um, anything you want, and it'll get kicked around, thrown around for perhaps years, just like other indigenous issues like, um, you know, autonomy and having their own regions where they can do what they want. A lot of these things just get stuck in a pipeline that never seems to really empty out. And of course, Ross, most of these weapons these Aboriginal tribes people use when they go hunting are actually homemade. So there's, again, I mean, surely if the government wanted to regulate it, they it could say you could have these weapons, they're okay, you've got a license for them, rather than having people make their own weapons. Yeah, that, that, that goes to the, the authorities want to err on the side of caution and, and want to limit uh, the number of weapons in circulation uh, in Taiwan. And, and the truth is um, that that is something about Taiwan's uh, criminal justice system or, or uh, uh, law enforcement. Uh, generally, uh, there are not a lot of weapons in circulation in, in Taiwan, and sometimes they are weapons that are used in, in crimes are homemade, uh, perhaps most famously the magic bullets that were fired at Chen Shui-bian uh, allegedly came from a homemade homemade weapon. Uh, so uh, the authorities want to regulate the weapons and say you have certain, you could use them, but uh, we need to know what you're using. And understandably, again, the, the indigenous persons say we've been hunting uh, for, for you know, forever. Uh, we, we, we were here before you are. We were hunting with weapons long before you are. Uh, we don't want to be micromanaged this way. Uh, so it's, it's a clash of, clash of views. Uh, I, I think we could all agree we want to preserve and respect the, the heritage of the indigenous populations. Uh, to the extent that uh, many have moved to the, to the cities, I, I think there'd be a lot of 
leaders in the indigenous community or even outside the indigenous community who would support uh, efforts to ensure that these traditions are passed on uh, and even people who are living in the cities but want to periodically return uh, to where, they're, where they might have uh, family ties to uh, and, and to learn these traditions. I think people are very supportive of that. So uh, I hope the government could show a little leeway uh, to the indigenous uh, populations on some of these issues. And before we go this week, DPP lawmaker Wang Dingyu made front pages, or nearly, nearly, nearly some front pages, not all of them, also made the news this week, but not all the news, as we'll get to in a minute, on allegations that he's having an affair with a DPP's spokeswoman. Now, of course, while we're not going to actually discuss the contents of the articles much further than saying he was living in an apartment owned by Yen Ro Fung and there was allegations they were having an affair. He denied the allegations. That's the story in a nutshell. But of course, Ross, this brings us to two issues. How Taiwan's newspapers handle such issues of allegations of affairs and also the fact that, well, it appeared on some networks, but it disappeared from others. People who are in public life, whether uh, politicians, uh, celebrities, uh, they, they should expect that uh, people like to call them paparazzi, but even investigative reporters are, are going to examine their, their personal lives as well as their finances. And uh, there's certainly an extraordinary number of precedents for this. And uh, look, this, this is a bit different in, in other countries. Some countries uh, really, uh, the public, the press, they really respect the personal lives of people who are in, in uh, public life, whether it's celebrities or, or uh, politicians. Uh, for example, uh, European countries, you know, it, for the public and the media, it, it maybe this is not a big deal. Other countries, including Taiwan, uh, they've come to expect a, a certain level of uh, conservative behavior, you could say, with with politicians to a lesser extent, celebrities, uh, and though they're they're not going to let uh, this kind of accusation slide without uh, you know, putting it into the media if it's dug out uh, by a media outlet, uh, and then criticism. So we see uh, a lot of netizens did react very negatively. In Taiwan, very few netizens are going to say, "Well, it's none of our business." Is the public that that's that's a family issue had no impact on his work. I will say that uh, to the extent that these things involve politicians, especially those who are involved in uh, any type of national security, foreign policy, defense policy issues, as Legislator Wong is, uh, there's always the blackmail risk. And and we we see that uh, there was the spokesman from the presidential office who was involved in his own scandal and and had to resign a few months ago. And that, that, that was in the news uh, the judicial, sorry, the the control UN issued a very detailed report uh, confirming some of those allegations. Again, there, there's a blackmail risk there as well. So I, I think po- the public is is correct to expect politicians to be very careful in their their personal behavior. Uh, the the second issue you you referenced is uh, it's a bit unfortunate. I don't think that's a healthy phenomenon uh, that several media that are frankly uh, uh, aligned with the government. Uh, including uh, media uh, where the leadership is uh, often referred to as uh, being uh, the the head of a faction within the DPP to which Legislator Wong is 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 aligned to, uh, that some of these media outlets uh, posted articles and then removed them. 
there, there was one television host who, who wrote on Instagram that we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about the personal lives of, of politicians on our programs. And, and netizens immediately pointed out, well, you did when you wanted to have guests on your show accusing Hangul Yu of having an extramarital affair, but you don't want to do it when it's a DPP legislator who's accused of, of uh, similar behavior. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think that's healthy. I think you know, the, the media... Um, should fulfill its proper role in society. Yes, they could have their editorial bias, but if they're going to bury a negative story about uh, DPP politicians or, or the government, I think that that is a, a terrible thing, whether it was uh, media aligned with the Gomindang that, that buried a story about Gomindang politicians or DPP aligned media that buried a, a negative news about the government or DP politicians. I, I really think that that is just very bad for Taiwan's democ- democracy and, and, and media environment. Um, I don't really think it's such a complex decision-making process among the media. Taiwan's media culture and a lot of people in society still um, privately and eagerly appreciate that kind of news. We're we're talking about tabloid journalism, basically, where you have two people who are reasonably well-known, possibly having an affair with each other, and... It just, it just works itself. You have images of both people. Apparently, there's you know they know where the, the home was, so they have all the ingredients of a story that will be um, quietly but eagerly read and digested and appreciated by a lot of readers here. And they'll go online and say, "Oh, how horrible this is," but they'll read it and they'll read that more than they'll read stories about the <clears throat> the economy or the Chinese military buildup and some of the things that perhaps they should care more about. Um, whether some media outlets took it down because of political pressure, perhaps and probably, and it wouldn't be the first time or the last time. We all know that the media outlets here generally sympathize either with the government or with the opposition. So that's what they do. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.